At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Because It's 2015 edition. My name is Brent Whitmire, I'm an editorial and features writer, and I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, November 6th. We have a new federal cabinet, and Alberta managed to get two seats at that table because it's 2015. Premier Rachel Notley, who achieved gender parity all the way back in May, is promising to change rules so that MLAs who have kids won't get fined for missing work. We'll talk about that, plus a surprising controversy over start times. As always on the press gallery, I promise we'll at least try to remind you what year it is. Here in the studio, after lobbying to change from 9 a.m. start time, we have city columnist Paula Simon. That was Graham who lobbied for the later start time. I hey, would just like no, to say. No, <laughs> Actually, 15 minutes late. Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And web producer and local legend Stuart X. Thompson. Hey. You all look fantastic. As always. As always. I have to point out that while we didn't achieve gender parity on this today's press gallery, we at least arrived at Thompson parity. Uh, we started this week with all kinds of cabinet speculations, stipulations, which segued into cabinet analysis. When it was all over, Alberta had two spots on that 31-seat table. Kent Hare on v- Veteran Affairs and Ar- Amarjeet Sohi on Infrastructure. Uh, how surprised were you that this is how it ended up happening? Well, I was happily surprised when the when the news broke, uh, when the Ottawa Citizen uh, started tweeting speculation that Amarjeet Sohi was going to get infrastructure. That is a huge win. Mm-hmm. For not just for Edmonton, but for municipalities across the country to have somebody who knows urban infrastructure issues inside out and backwards in that role. But it's a huge coup for Edmonton to have somebody, you know, the Toronto Star and other media outlets in Toronto were speculating that Alberta would only get one cabinet seat. And I was worried for a moment that Amarjeet so he might not even be in cabinet at all mm-hmm. uh he told me that he only found out for sure he was going to be in cabinet that morning and he only found out his actual portfolio just shortly before he was sworn in so uh i think he was also pleasantly surprised <laughs> i think the fact that we of course only have four liberal mps in alberta and half the alberta caucus is now in cabinet is, is a good thing as well uh, i know kent hare from he was an mla a liberal mla it's interesting, you know, he, he was wanting to get out of the Liberal caucus for some time, provincially. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, he, he ran, he began running for the mayor's job in, in Calgary, and then he, of course, ran uh, successfully for the uh, Liberal uh, Party, uh, becoming an MP. His movement, I followed it really closely because I, I realized what he was telling the world was the Liberals in Alberta were going nowhere, uh, and he was right. He, I think he will be uh, very good in that position, and I think it's going to be good for, for Edmonton for other reasons that Paula said. Um, the big question, of course, is going to be moving forward on climate change. Um, you know, this balance between climate change and the energy industry, there's a fear that um, some of the portfolios, environment and climate change, could be a bad thing for the, the energy inter- industry in Alberta. We'll see what actually happens with that, because one of the big portfolios, one of the big issues going forward is the um, big Paris Convention. 
later this month and in early December on climate change and just what's going to happen there with the Liberal government. Also with the the, the, uh, the NDP, uh, we'll see Rachel Notley go to that. So this is going to be an issue about, yes, it's good, we've got the voices in Alberta going to Ottawa. Yeah. But then a uh, big issue is climate change versus the energy industry and how's that going to play out? Hmm. W- would you have been would you've been shocked if there had been an Alberta environment minister? Would yeah, probably. <laughs> um, that would have been a real juggle. Um, I think it's great we've uh, actually got two. I was surprised in a sense. There's always that fear we'd only get one and would it come from Calgary? But I think it's, it's worth noting that uh, Sohi, who's going to have $125 billion to spend over 10 years is the, is the plan for infrastructure. That's a real power position. Uh, and he's also uh, been appointed to the Environment and Climate Change Cabinet Committee. Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's sending a signal that part of his brief is going to be to really push a transit agenda. Mm. You know, it's not this is infrastructure, not just about building roads, but infrastructure about environmental transformation. Graham pointed out that, that Kent Hare ran for mayor in Calgary. Uh, it, there were speculations in Amarjeet, so he might have taken a shot at mayor yeah. in Edmonton. So yes. this yeah. is a this is a nice. Yeah, it's a good backup plan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Stuart, you were talking a couple weeks ago about the choices liberals had. Were you surprised by anything? And uh, who do you think has the most terrifying position? <laughs> well, I think there weren't a lot of big surprises. I think you can look at the, the Toronto Three, which is Adam Vaughn and Andrew Leslie and Bill Blair, who didn't get into cabinet. Somebody said this on Twitter, and I think it was really apt, is it's kind of appropriate that Bill Blair, who ran the Toronto carding system that stopped young black men in Toronto, he was profiled out of cabinet. Um, being a white guy, he didn't get in. And I think when you look at the, the makeup of the rest of the cabinet, I was kind of expecting McCallum and Goodale, maybe those guys to get senior portfolios like finance or something like that. But you can kind of see some rhyme and reason to it with, say, McCallum. His job is to resettle 25,000 refugees. That's a big job. And you kind of want a guy who's been around doing something like that. And uh, the, the person I don't envy is uh, Christia Freeland, she's jumping into the TPP trade deal right mm-hmm. now. Um, so I think there's a few big jobs to happen uh, uh, that have to be done right now. And I think when you look at the makeup of the cabinet, the experience tended to go where there's a big job to happen in that portfolio yeah. and, right now. And Ralph Goodale uh, will be responsible for dealing with the C-51 issue. They took this kind of complicated to explain middle road position that, you know, we're opposed to the bill, but we're going to vote in favor of it because we need something and then we'll fix it later. Yeah. And people laughed at them. But now Goodale is going to yes. be the guy who has to fix it later. I mean, I think the the things that were really the, the two portfolios that have everybody talking. Jody Wilson-Bremont as the Minister of Justice, she is not just an Aboriginal woman, but she's a former chief uh, and a former Crown prosecutor and uh, daughter of Aboriginal activist uh, Bill Wilson, to have an Indigenous woman in charge of the Justice Department after so many decades of Indigenous people in this country complaining that the justice system is stacked against them, that sends an extraordinary signal, uh, not just to Indigenous First Nations Canadians, but I think to all Canadians about what justice means in this country. I don't know more. It was one of those things where, as it was happening, you didn't really know what kind of effect it would have. And Wilson Raymond, she said that was her reason for running. She wouldn't be an MP if it wasn't for I don't know more. And I think there was a big wave of voter activity among Aboriginal people based on that and based on this new activism. And just having her in the justice portfolio, I think that's a huge win. I think you can trace it back to that movement. The other really, I think, 
talked about portfolio is Arjit Sajjan uh, as Minister of National Defense. And this is a portfolio that, you know, as Graham knows very well, matters a great deal to people in Edmonton because we're the home of, of a really important military base. But Sajjan is not just an accomplished drug gang police officer from Vancouver. He did three tours in Afghanistan as a reservist and a tour in Bosnia. I think a lot of people were thinking it was going to be Andrew Leslie from from Toronto. But, you know, Sajan, you know, when you see magazines like Foreign Policy calling him Canada's badass defense minister. Mm -hmm. um, and Foreign Policy pointed out that in the United States, there are exactly three Sikh members in the armed forces, none of whom is allowed to serve in a frontline position because they wear beards and turbans and that's not allowed. And, I, 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 and Sajan <laughs> apparently invented and patented his own gas mask so that he could, <laughs> see, so that he could have a full uh, observant Sikh beard and have a gas mask. Hmm. So, you know, uh, I think for international media, they're looking at that and saying, you know, he's really become emblematic of Canada's, you know, what Canada in 2015 looks like. There was a lot of talk before the the cabinet announcement about the reference to 50% before they actually pointed the cabinet and all this stuff. I mean, do you think that that has any any claim? Like this well, seems to be like I think he should I, frankly as a woman, I think he never should have promised parity out front mm -hmm. because then it does make people it does make it look like tokenism, which is stupid because the women he's appointed are remarkably accomplished. Now, there are also a couple of kind of, you know, made up portfolios. You know, I think there're probably two extra cabinet positions that may have been created in order to get to gender parity. But I think it, it's a shame because I think the, the people he appointed are remarkably accomplished and they'll, they'll stand and fall on their own merits. You know, it won't be about their ethnicity. It won't be about which bathroom they use. It'll be how well they perform. And now we get to see. There's a story out this morning from iPolitics saying that uh, five of the women are ministers of state. Minister of state is a junior minister in effect. Uh, the pay may be less. Now, that's an issue that's yeah, being debated they, right yeah, now. Yeah, they're saying now it's not going to be. Yeah, they're yeah. going to say that it'll be the same because there's actually, I think there's a Salaries Act that says it can actually be the same pay. But a minister of state has to report to a, a senior minister. They can't sign orders in council and cabinet. So it's not the same. The mm -hmm. same. So I think if you really want equality, then they should all be ministers because all the men, even the brand new neophytes, even those who have never been in a federal politics uh, before, are full ministers. Five of the women are ministers of state. So that does tend to dilute um, this aspect of him promising gender uh, equity. And I agree with Paula. He shouldn't have made it an election promise because people then are jumping all over him saying that he's doing this for tokenism. Right. And uh, Andrew Coyne pointed out that committee chairs, seven out of 10 are men, uh, seven out of 11 on the agenda committee and eight out of 11 on the treasury board, all men. So the people who actually wield the power uh, when it comes down to it in some ways it's still not not quite there but you know these things it's nice when they can happen organically yeah. i mean here in alberta rachel notley didn't have any problem making her, her cabinet half women because she has some really kick-ass female uh, mlas and and half her caucus is female yeah. so you know here it was kind of a no-brainer you know federally i don't want tokenism I'm excited to see, you know, a woman in justice, a woman in trade, a woman in, you know, not just not Health. just sort of the soft well. portfolios, but you know, these are these are the serious portfolios. I think it's very early days to judge. I think, you know, we should give them, oh, you know, maybe a month or two months or <laughs> at six least a months, week, you at know, least, before, yeah. before we judge the, the, you know, 
completely the caliber of these appointments. Yeah, right. I think this is, it's kind of the problem with the self-congratulatory nature of it too, but because uh, people will jump all over you. But I think there is a risk of acting like this solves the whole problem. Like, okay, now we have a gender parity in cabinet. But the problem is much deeper than that because the the caucus itself is doesn't have parity. And of course, the House of Commons doesn't have parity. And those issues are much deeper than that. Like, why aren't women running in the same numbers men are? What are the obstacles to that? And these are questions that take a long time to figure out and a long time to fix. So it's nice that this has happened, but you can't act like you've solved the whole problem by t- making right. your cabinet like this. Well, or declaring, declaring that it is 2015, in fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In other news, uh, uh, another another woman has a, a taken a position of power in Alberta. Uh, Rana Ambrose was named the the Conservative Party interim leader yesterday. Uh, what can we expect from her? And uh, do you think this is a good call for the Conservatives? I think it's a good call in the sense it's a, definitely a different face. You know, this mm-hmm. is a, a shift. She's young and she's female. That's a, a, something new for the Conservatives. So I think on that, at least on the surface, it's a good idea. Ultimately, though, of course, the big issue is going to be who will become the leader for the next election. And she'll be around for a year, maybe even two years. So, so she will be important. But I think someone else mentioned this morning that it's not really that consequential as long as she does her job. Mm-hmm. If she screws up, that's an issue. If she does her job well, and the job is to well, keep things together, portray a good face to the public while the work's being done behind her, you know, and rebuilding the party, getting money and getting candidates and getting a new leader. That's going to be the big issue for the, the conservatives moving forward, not so much the interim leader. Yeah, what Ronna Ambrose is going to have to overcome is, I was going to say hesitance, but fear is a better word, <laughs> of dealing with the media. I remember the very first time I ever heard her interviewed on CBC Radio, and she seemed f- smart and funny, and I thought, well, I mean, I'm not a conservative, but I could... I could see myself voting for that person. And then that person disappeared. Hmm. Uh, You know, I feel like for the last 10 years, she's been like a marionette with Stephen Harper pulling her strings. And anytime she came out to speak in public, she looked terrified. I don't think so much terrified of the media as terrified of somehow that she might deviate from the script and then get spanked in the woodshed afterwards. (laughs) So after 10 years of covering the woman, and I've interviewed her multiple times, been to editorial boards with her, I still don't feel like I know who Ronna Ambrose is. Hmm. So maybe she's going to burst forth, freed from the shackles of being in the Harper cabinet, uh, and we're going to see a new Ronna Ambrose. But if we don't see a new Ronna Ambrose, she's going to have a problem because she's very awkward with the media. After 10 years of not having a backbone, she's going to have to grow one really quickly. I don't think we're going to see that. I think what they were looking for is somebody who won't make any waves, so they wanted the good soldier who isn't completely discredited. So you have the Kalanders and the Polyevs who nobody takes seriously, but you have Rana who has managed to toe the party line for 10 years and not look like a total idiot doing it. So I think they just wanted someone who will make it nice and easy until they actually get a leader. So yeah, we might agree. Be. That's mighty praise. <laughs> not, a, not, a, not a total idiot. <laughs> that, that could be a campaign slogan. Um, no, I agree. I think that what they do want to do right now is just they want to rebuild. And that goes on behind the scenes. That's the important work. Her work is to not screw up, present a face to the public that, that is seen to be more warm than uh, the old guy. Not hard. <laughs> and her, her French is serviceable, hmm. you know, which is important. She's going to have to, you know, be able to speak you know speak passable french in that position and that's uh, another campaign slogan right there <laughs> passable french <laughs> conservative party 
um, back in Alberta, we had our, a bit of our own because it's 2015 moment uh, when it came to light that Stephanie McLean, the MLA for Calgary Varsity, is in the family way, as they say. Uh, not only is that... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know where they say that. Cause <laughs> they, they say I, it in 1950. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Uh, not only is there no mat leave, uh, but she, if she misses more than 10 days, she, she'll have uh, she'll be docked $100 a day. Graham, you started your column yesterday with the Trudeau-esque line, uh, welcome to the 21st century. What's what's going to happen? Well, the, the government's going to change the rules. It's an archaic rule. Um, you know, even though people have emailed me and pointed out, even if she got $100 a day every day for the whole year, she's still making over $100,000. $100, I make $130,000 a year. Even if she got docked that much money, $100 a day, she'll still make 100000 But the point here is, you know, the point here is it shouldn't be docked pay for, for being pregnant and having a baby. That shouldn't be a punishment. Uh, so they're going to change it. And I think that um, Notley's been very clear saying we will change the rules. Um, because these rules were written when no one really thought of a woman actually being elected and then uh, giving birth while while in office. So, yes, they're going to change the rules. The question is how fast will they do it? And will they get pushed back from the opposition on this? I don't know because we have this issue about family time and the, yeah. the hours of work at the legislature these days where the Wild Roses is, is shooting back at the government. But I can't imagine anybody trying to trip up uh, an amendment to the legislation that would allow someone to take, you know, even reasonable maternity leave as an right. MLA. But, you know, it's interesting. It, it's a question of mindset. And it, as Stuart says, it, it points to something much deeper in our society. Because my first snarky reaction, was I thought, hey, people just elected you, yeah. you know, to do your job. Why are you getting knocked up? And then I thought, wow, bad <laughs> feminist. Bad feminist because nobody, nobody says that if a male MLA yeah. um, has a baby while in the legislature and i thought whoa yes paula that was that was bad this is the problem right it is very 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 difficult to be a woman and a professional and have a family life uh-huh. and i was always grateful working at the edmonton journal that i got 12 months of maternity leave uh friends of mine who were lawyers had their babies and were back at work hard you know hard at work uh, yeah. as legal associates and partners in three months and that's compared to the U.S., where it's like, yeah, you know, twenty minutes later, you got. Yeah, well, you know, I, I always remember. I, I actually started to cry when I had my copy of What to Expect When You're Expecting, yeah. and it gives you sort of, you know, the timetable for after the baby is born, and then it says six weeks return to work. If I'd had to return to work at six weeks, I'd have just spent all my time under my desk crying. But um, you don't. But <laughs> <laughs> no, sweetie, I'm the one who makes people cry. Uh. <laughs> This is where you see where all these things are connected. We, you talked about that Andrew Coyne column where he said, his first column where he yeah. said, you know, we have to do these things by merit. And the problem is when white guys go looking for merit, they tend to find white guys. And when white legislatures and well, male legislatures tend to go looking for things to legislate, they don't often think about things like maternity leave. So when you actually have women in the House and legislature, these are the kind of issues that you come upon, whereas you wouldn't really have come upon them. A couple minutes ago, before we started this podcast, we had breaking news alerts that after a long speculation, President Barack Obama has decided to reject the Keystone XL pipeline. And now we see we're seeing a bit of the first few sort of words coming out of his announcement. Uh, He apparently is saying that shipping dirty crude oil into our country would not increase U.S. energy security and that it would not make a meaningful impact on the U.S. economy or lower gas prices. What what do you make? Uh, in these initial moments of um, this this news, what what do you have to say? 
this is when I have my one of my channeling Ezra Levant <laughs> moments. Like the oil from the back in oil fields is cleaner. I, the, the dirty crude argument makes me a little bit bananas. The reason that the United States burns oil is because there's a consumer demand for oil. If they don't burn Alberta oil, they're going to be burning somebody else's oil. Every kind of energy has an environmental cost and every kind of energy has a social cost. As an, I guess as an Albertan, I mean, I think that Alberta needs to do more to clean up its own act, to have the social license to export, but to pretend that our oil is somehow specially and magically more evil than anybody else's oil does drive me a little bit bananas. <laughs> this is in a sense chickens coming home to roost uh, with Alberta's environmental record. The thing is, yes, our extracting Oil from the oil sands is more carbon intensive than what they do in Saudi Arabia with sweet crude. We do have a higher carbon footprint at the initial stage. Back in the day, Ralph Klein did not really address that. He made fun <laughs> of, of climate change. They call it dinosaur farts for causing climate yeah. change. He made fun of it. That allowed, and, and then they actually ramped up the oil sands big time. Um, and then the, the Americans started thinking, well, what's happening up there? And then you had all kinds of protests in the U.S. against uh, oil sands, and Alberta tended to try and brush it off, make fun of that. They did not address it seriously. That gave the environmentalists, I, I would say, the moral high ground, and Alberta's trying to be catching up ever since, and this is sort of the result of that, you could argue, that Alberta didn't do enough at the beginning. People get, get this impression that the oil sands are the root of all evil. They're not when it comes to climate change. Coal, burning coal, worldwide biggest source, man-made source of carbon emissions. Anyway, having said all that, uh, it's a bit late now. Uh, he said no. Uh, Obama said no. The question now is, is it really dead or can it be revived? But coming back to Alberta, uh, Notley's not a big fan of the Keystone XL pipeline, of course. Alberta's looking east and west, especially east. So for Alberta, in terms of the Alberta government, they've been kind of ri writing off the Keystone XL pipeline, even though I think Trudeau is more in favor of it. But it's sort of it's blocked right now. It still may not be actually dead. It might come back, depending on what happens uh, with the next uh, presidential election. It, is a, it was a PR thing. And when you saw Stephen Harper going down to the States and saying, you know, approve this or else. And as the rest of the world and actually the rest of Canada starts to realize we're on path for two degrees warming, it's, it's almost baked in at this point. Like it's not going to change. Um, so anything we emit at this point is just adding to the problem. Mm -hmm. The rest of the world is coming around to that fact. It doesn't matter what you think in Calgary because you have to, you have to export that oil somewhere. E even yesterday when... There was a Globe story, uh, a Calgary reaction to the Ministry of Environment adding climate change to the name, and they were acting like it was an attack on them. But it's not. Climate change is a real problem. It's a bigger problem than most of us want to realize or even want to accept. Uh, and this kind of thing is going to happen more and more as the rest of the world opens up to that. It's good to actually have a government now in Alberta that's buying into that. The yeah. thing is real. Because the conservatives kept dragging their feet, both federally and provincially. The world's moving in a certain direction, and we kept saying, no, 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 hey, it's not real. Uh, let's try and find ways of, of slowing things down in terms of climate change um, mitigation. Now, maybe we'll actually, if we'll see what actually happens, may have a better chance of getting some pipelines built. If we have governments in Canada, federally and provincially, say, it's a problem, how do we address it? But we still need uh, energy. It's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week we share something we've enjoyed, often but not always with a political connection. Uh, Paula? I'm going to recommend an extraordinary series of documentaries that uh, The Current ran this week 
about the refugee crisis in Syria, and not just Syria, Somalia too, all seen through the lens of what it means to be a child refugee. Hmm. Very, very powerful and moving stuff and really helps to see just how complex this is, not just in terms of you know providing temporary housing for people, but what do you do when you have 14 and 15 year old kids who are showing up in your country without any adult support? Hmm. Graham. Uh, speaking of refugees, um, great article, really long article in the New Yorker last week, actually. It's called 10 Borders, One Refugee's Epic Escape from Syria. And it did a story looking at one refugee and how he got into Europe. Uh, you know, he left his wife behind. He had family that d- made the move, and so he started following their footsteps. But he gets into all kinds of problems trying to cross the borders, 10 borders. And it's interesting as well looking at how social media plays a part. Hmm. Stuart? Uh, Well, I'll go back to the gender parity discussion. Um, John Kay, who's the editor of The Walrus, was on a panel sort of arguing that this should all be merit-based. He took a bit of a beating for that, uh, and then he wrote something for The Walrus website saying, well, you know, this is mostly class. This isn't about gender and race. And then, uh, to his credit, he got a young writer named Karen Coe to rebut him, and she torched him on (laughs) the Walrus website. And then the next day, he actually wrote a mea culpa and sort of changed his whole perspective. So you can actually see the evolution of a really smart guy as he sort of comes to some realizations. So I really recommend reading all the pieces. Uh, My good stuff from the gallery this week comes from The New Yorker, a piece by Michael Spector called Freedom from Fries. It's about uh, the changing world of fast food, the attempts to make food healthier, and also the radical agricultural changes needed to make that happen, to tinker with our McMuffins. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or on Edmonton Journal's SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out the Journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Paula, Graham, and Stuart for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next time where we'll discuss what will we discuss, what year it is. Uh, Thanks. (laughs) That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.